Hello and welcome to the Power in the Key podcast. I'm your host, Neil Winterton, and joining me on the line as he does every week, it's Ben Cad. How are you, Caddy? We know I'm well, mate, and thanks for having me back again. I'm just fresh off the back of coming home from the NBL Cup, so basketball is ingrained in my mind, so ready to ready to roll. Beautiful, mate, and uh, we'll touch on a bit of the NBL uh, later in the show. But to kick it off, we'll get uh, straight into the NBA All-Star chat, which uh, the reserves were announced this week. And uh, we'll run through the West, so that we'll run through the starters again, uh, which was Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, and Kawhi Leonard. And the reserves, which were announced this week, were the, the Utah pair, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, Zion Williamson, Paul George, Damian Lillard, Chris Paul, and Anthony Davis. And Anthony Davis is obviously not going to be available for the All-Star game, and Devin Booker was quickly announced as a replacement there. Uh, how did you see that the reserves shaking out there, Caddy? Were there any surprises to you or any or any guys you thought were pretty unlucky? Oh, look, I don't think so much surprises. I think the West this year was probably a more straightforward uh, selection for the 12 guys in the end. So the, the only sort of change I probably had in my predictions early on and, and only because I made that, I would have probably stuck fat with it, was uh, Devin Booker being named initially in the team and I probably would have had him in the place of Chris Paul. So, look, each, each or all was probably a good decision, really. Phoenix needed to be rewarded for their start to the season. And, and in the end, they've now got the two in the team uh, with Booker and Paul now making it. So, just reward for their effort. But that was probably the one I would have had uh, slightly different would have been Devin Booker in. Um, I mean, Connolly at Utah, there was obviously a bit of noise around him finally getting an all-star berth. And again, probably to reward the Utah Jazz for their scintillating start to the year to have three all-stars, but it was just probably a bridge too far in the end for Conley. But, um, you know, again, he's having uh, having a really good season. Yeah, look, unfortunately, Conley, as you said, he's having a really good season there, but his numbers don't quite jump off the page and scream all-star at, you know, 16 points a game and just under six assists a game. So he still does lead the league in, in plus-minus per game. So he's, he's obviously having a huge impact for Utah, but... There were just some guys probably just ahead of him, and unfortunately for him, it's probably his last last shot at being an all-star, but he, it might be better off for him to go down as the best player to never make an all-star team. If he hadn't made one, he would he probably wasn't going to be spoken about spoken about too much in the future, so he might be able to, might be able to hang his hat on that. Uh, for me, that, that was the toughest one as well with Chris Paul or Devin Booker. I did side with Chris Paul in the end. I, I just think... Chris Paul is just a, w- a winning player. Wherever he goes, the, the team gets better, and, and that is actually the fact. The last four teams, this Chris Paul is on his fourth team now, and he is the first player to be announced an All Star for four different teams. The first year in Chris Paul's that Chris Paul has been on a new team, that team has got better every single year, and, and he's been on some decent teams. He went to Houston when Houston had, had a really good season the season before, and last year when he was at OKC, they were coming off a year with Paul George and Russell Westbrook, so he hasn't been going into some to some very ordinary teams and lifting them up. He's going into some really good teams and, and improving them uh, you know, even further. And, and I think that's the case again this year. We saw how well Phoenix did finish the, the, the bubble last year. They, they went on an eight-game winning streak when they were there. But they've gone to another level this year, and that's based on Chris Paul. They're a Chris Paul team. They play at a slow pace. He slows them down. They play a more a half-court brand of basketball. And you know his numbers, again, probably don't jump off the page, but, but he ju- he's just a general for them, and I think he's what makes him tick. And De- Devin Booker w- was certainly a, a worthy replacement for Anthony Davis. His last month has been outstanding, averaging 27 points a game and 4.3 assists, shooting over 50% from the field. So so there's no qualms there about Devin Booker being that replacement for Anthony Davis. Uh, some other guys I thought were not unlucky, but that certainly would have been close to an all-star berth because I reckon they nailed... The, the 12 All-Stars there. Uh, I, I spoke earlier when we picked our teams about Shea Gill, just Alexander, and I'm going to die on that hill. I thought he's had an outstanding <laughs> year so far. Maybe not quite an All-Star, given that OKC are only 14 and 19, but at uh, 23.5 points a game, 5.3 rebounds and 6.3 assists, shooting 51, 42, 79 splits. You can't ask for much more from a guy like that when the, when the defence certainly is uh, putting all their attention onto him. And the other one is Brandon Ingram. Now, they... They've sided with Zion, Zion Williamson, and I think deservedly so, given the way that Williamson has played the last month or so. But Ingram's got eerily uh, similar numbers to what he put up last year. He's at 24 points a game, 5.3 rebounds and 4.7 assists, shooting 47, 38 and 87 splits. So as I said, really, really similar numbers to what he put up last year when he was an all-star. But given the fact that the Pelicans are only 14 and 18, 
I think it would be very difficult for the coaches to to announce uh, two all stars from the Pelicans. Would you have sided with Zion in, in, out of those two? Yeah, look, I had Zion initially, and then I think his plays only improved over the last three or four weeks. So I think in the end, he was probably, um, from the Pelican point of view, uh, had the nose in front. The other guy that's probably worth mentioning here, and you talked about the New Orleans Pelicans record and the fact that you know certainly they would have been lucky to get two All Stars. Well, you've got to feel sorry for the fifth place in the West San Antonio Spurs, who are sitting a very healthy uh, seventeen and twelve, and Demar Derozan's probably the catalyst behind that. Yep. And again, when you talk about numbers not jumping off the page, he's he's certainly don't. But um, some of his plus minus minutes and some of the numbers that he has when he's on the court and Lamarcus Aldridge is on the bench, basically outscoring opponents by four and a half points per hundred possessions is um, really impressive. And he's really helping that development of Dejounte Murray and Calvin Johnson. You know, helping them sort of learn about playing winning basketball. So he's a guy that's been overlooked, but I think from the Spurs' point of view. To be sitting fifth there in the West is a sensational achievement, and DeRozan's a big reason for that. Yeah, I don't think anyone would, would have expected uh, the Spurs to be sitting fifth in the West. They obviously missed the playoffs last year for the first time in you know a long, long time. Um, so, yeah, so as you mentioned there, for them to be sitting fifth, DeRozan's certainly the driver behind that. So he certainly could have uh, mounted a pretty strong case to be included in the All-Stars there. Uh, moving on to the, to the East, the starters, which were named a couple of weeks ago, were Irving, Bradley Beal, Giannis, Joel Embiid, and Kevin Durant. And the reserves which were announced were Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, both from Boston. Ben Simmons, first-timer Julia Randall, Julius Randall, sorry, James Harden, Zach Levine, and Nikola Vucevic. Now, Kevin Durant is out with an injury and, and won't be participating in the All-Star game, and DeMontis Sabonis has been announced as his replacement. If, if Sabonis had a missed, he would have actually been the first player in the history uh, of the league to not be an All-Star who was averaging 20 points... 10 rebounds and five assists a game. So probably a worthy replacement there. But there was also a number of uh, other guys who could have been announced as a replacement. Particularly, I think that, and my Miami bias might come out here, but the Miami pairing, uh, Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler. Now, Miami have obviously improved a lot recently. They're now up to 16 and, and 17, which makes them equal six in the East. So what I think happened with these two is when the coaches voted, they looked at Miami's record and thought, well, we can't have two Miami players in the All-Star game. And I reckon Bam and Jimmy probably split the vote. Some coaches voted for Bam, some voted for Jimmy, and I reckon they just both missed out in the end because of that. Do you reckon that's what may have happened? Yeah, quite possibly. Quite odd to think, you know, a team that went to the, all the way to the NBA Finals with you know some true stars in that lineup haven't been able to field a, an NBA All-Star this year. So that is quite surprising. However, I think it is a reflection of the the growing strength of the Eastern Conference, not just from you know some of the improvement of, of some of the teams, but certainly from um, the additional star power that's come into the conference. And you look no further than a guy like Kevin Durant, who obviously isn't going to be playing in the game, but um, was named as a starter into the team. So as we spoke about when we did our selections three or four weeks ago, we could have picked five or six blokes for those last two spots. And that's kind of how it worked. You know, you look at Chris Middleton probably being unlucky, Certainly Julius Randle, I think, deserved his spot, albeit Knicks had probably tailed off a little bit from their hot start. Um, so you could have really mounted a case for anyone. And as you said, DeMontis Sabonis, I think it nearly broke Twitter both ways when he first got left off. And, you know, some of these stats that you mentioned before came out and, uh, as how it's historic that he couldn't make the team. But then when he was named as a replacement, it nearly blew up Twitter again because uh, there were so many people, you know, mounting their cases for Adebayo and Butler and Middleton. So, you know, I don't think you could have really ever settled on a really consistent 12 for the East. And I think that's sort of just a reflection of, of the conference gathering momentum. Yeah, no doubt. Those last few spots were really, really tough to, to decide who to go for. You mentioned Middleton. Yeah, he's desperately unlucky as well. He, he's put up very similar numbers uh, to last year at 20 points a game, 6.1 rebounds and 5.7 assists shooting 50, 43 and 89 splits. So he's doing nothing wrong. You get the feeling that it was just probably the fact that Milwaukee have been on a bit of a downer uh, the last couple of weeks and, and that probably cost him his spot. If the, if the voting was done a few weeks earlier, you'd reckon he would have almost been a walk-up start. So you mentioned there how close it was. Julius Randle, um, he put up very similar numbers to Sabonis. So it was interesting to see that he got the nod initially over Sabonis. Vucevic was the one, and I voted for Vuce quite a few weeks ago when we initially did this. Was it a surprise to you, given uh, Orlando's record, that Vuce actually ended up making the team? I think so. I think I think the record, when we you, you try and use it to justify other selections or omissions, that's the, obviously the startling one, 13 and 21. 
and yeah, the Vooch has been uh, absolutely tremendous and, and the reason they're even they've even won thirteen games. But, you know, when you do look at the guys that have missed out, particularly Middleton and yes, Milwaukee hit a flat spot, but they have just peeled off four wins in a row now to sort of really stabilise again. You know, there'd be arguments to say that Vooch probably could have sat this all-star game out and I don't think anyone would have blinked an eyelid. But, you know, just reward uh, reward for his numbers, albeit certainly on a on a team that's uh, languishing towards the bottom of the conference. Yeah, I think this year's all-star team is going to be an interesting one because it's, because it's been selected a lot earlier in the season than usual, just after, you know, just over 30 games. We've usually got a larger sample size, so you might actually find some guys... And I'm probably looking at Butler in particular, who has been outstanding uh, over the last month. And Miami have really got rolling uh, on the back of Butler's finding his form again. He, he could be one that actually makes an All-NBA team, but didn't make the All-Star team. So it'll be interesting to see how that does shake out. Just on when, when the, initial, the initial 24 players were announced, there were 11 players from last year who, who actually had lost their spots, which, which is a huge turnover. Now, two of them, Booker and Sabonis, have... Have since been added to the to the squad, so that still leaves nine out of the twenty four. Uh, Kemba Walker, Trey Young, Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler, and Bam Adebayo, Chris Middleton, Russell Westbrook, and Brandon Ingram are the guys who have lost their spot from last year. So it, it's interesting to see such a high turnover rate from last year going into this year. Is there anything you put that down to? Oh, I think you nailed it. Just in terms of the early selection in the season and the idiosyncrasies that we've seen um, with the schedule and teams missing bulk games in a row and um, we've seen a number of injuries early in the season as well and um, which ruled out some other players but look I, I wouldn't read too much into it I think the all-star game this year is really just going to be a TV product only and uh, there won't be a hell of a lot of external interest in it I wouldn't have thought even from the even internally from the playing group it's more you know just a recognition and notch on their belt for their career numbers really but yeah certainly this year it is all over the place in general, and I think the all-star voting you know, and the all-star selections is, is a nice reflection of that overall. It certainly is. Now, now one team that had two all-stars named are the Utah Jazz, and, and the Jazz are certainly flying of late. They're up to 27-7, and seven, which is first in the West and, and first right across the league. They're fourth in offense, offensive rating and second in defensive rating, and the net rating of plus 10.3, which is clearly first in the league. They've gone 23-3 and over their last 26 games. And amazingly, they've had 21 wins by double digits during that streak. What have you seen so far from the Jazz and how seriously do you think they could challenge for a championship? Uh, look, I think they're right in the mix, absolutely. And I think it's the, the biggest thing about their season this year, I think it's just that having that consistent roster that's returned from last year. Uh, they obviously got Bogdanovich back, who didn't play in the bubble, who's um, you know a, a really big fill-up into their offensive side of their game. And, and I think the other major improvement as a, from a team point of view is Mike Connolly's improved play last year when he came from Memphis. It, there was certainly a, a long period of adjustment for him and he, he started picking it up towards the end of the season in the bubble, but he's hit the ground running straight away and really um, assisted their offense and defense, you know, which is really, I think, is all built around uh, Rudy Gobert. So everything they do, both offensively and defensively, particularly from a defense on the pick and roll and also from the offense, it just alleviates any issues in getting people free out on the wings to hit the three-pointers. And they've got so many guys now capable of stepping into that and nailing a shot, whether it be Joe Ingles, Royce O'Neill can step up and shoot them. You see Jordan Clarkson, who we spoke about a few weeks ago as a six-man-of-the-year candidate, really nailing them as well. Bogdanovich, the other one. And then it just allows Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert to, to go about their, their work as well. So, no, they're really well-positioned. They're hyper-efficient, the way they're playing. There's, they seem to have an answer for everything. It, all, it reminds me a little bit of the San Antonio Spurs in their second year where they faced Miami in the playoffs. They sort of had that uh, year where they just got beat and they came back and everything they did was just so uh, systematic and everyone knew where to be at any given time. The ball movement just never stopped, So, which is going to give teams some problems. So particularly you're catching them during the regular season, you're not going to be quite ready for what they're bringing and the Jazz are just ready to go and they're hitting... But they're screen setters and roll men, and they're probably the best at the league at doing that. Yeah, you mentioned there the three-point shooting, and it's been outstanding this year. 48% of their shots are coming from three, and they're hitting 40% of those, which is absolutely incredible. And this season, they've actually set a franchise record three times 
for, for three-pointers made in a game and recently against Charlotte, they hit 28 of them. And they've also attempted 53s in a game five times this season. So you mentioned there how important Gobert is to him and, and he's a big part of that because he comes up, he sets the pick, he rolls and he collapses the defense in and that leaves the, that leaves these guys open from three and, and you sort of ran through a few of them there. So many of them are shooting over 40% and it's just so hard to defend. You, you pick your poison, do you... Do you let Rudy Gobert roll to the rim and dunk the ball or do you collapse in on him and, and sort of cross your fingers that they're going to miss from three? And at the moment, they're just not missing. So it'll be interesting to see if they can they can keep up this hot shooting from three. And if they can, they're going to be really difficult to beat. The one thing about them is they didn't have a lot of ros- a roster turnover from last year. And given the short off-season and the fact that there's hardly any shoot-arounds or practices, we've seen a, lot, a number of teams that, would have, that have had quite a bit of turnover struggle a little bit. But given that Utah, the only change they had was bringing back Derek Favors, who was obviously re- really familiar with the system that they run. So it wasn't much of an adjustment for them at all. And when he comes on and replaces Gobert, he can sort of you know play a poor man's version of what he does. So it, it certainly added to what they had last year. But do you think, given uh, that they had such little roster turnover, it has been a, a big plus for them. But do you think that can carry over into the playoffs? Or do you think that's still a bit of a question mark? No, I think they're pretty well built there for the playoffs, and I think it is just that uh, continuity that they have got. They were pretty close last year, and really, you know, we forget that it was um, a Mike Connolly haul from behind halfway that uh, nearly went in, that nearly progressed them into the second round of the playoffs last year. So they weren't that far away, and when you look at some of their some of their rating numbers, they're ranked fourth in offense, second in defense, and first in net rating. So they're elite in both uh, defense and offense, and as we mentioned, look, we, we probably all still think the Lakers at their best of the team to beat, but the risk was always around injury and, and they're starting to get them now. So if these guys can stay uh, relatively healthy, I think their depth can absorb, you know, one or two injuries through the regular season and it's not going to impact their final standing. They've got such a gap now. Uh, they're three and a half games clear of the Clippers in second and they're four games clear of the Lakers in third. So it's a really healthy gap that they, they're building in here. And, and that's going to be really important if we expect the Clippers and Lakers to finish in those uh, two and three spots in whichever order in the West. It does mean that they'll be able to avoid them at least till the Western Conference Finals. So in, in that case, you know, they're really well positioned, you know, if they can continue this play. And, and there's nothing to say at this stage or we haven't seen anything to suggest it's not going to. Yeah, you're spot on there. If that, if they finish first in the West, that's huge. As I mentioned, they'll only have to play one of the LA teams once. I guess the the big question mark is when the game does slow down in the playoffs, the ball will be in Donovan's Mitchell's hands, and we have seen that he he has been able to produce for them in the playoffs. But can he do it again with the game on the line? Can he go up against you know a Harden or a Durant or a LeBron or a Kawhi? These other guys who we know can do it in the clutch when in a playoff uh, scenario. We saw she. Shaquille O'Neal questioned whether Donovan Mitchell can do that in a playoff setting. Do you believe in Mitchell? Do you think he could, he could in essence, carry a team to a to a championship? Um, look, I don't know that he's, you know, and Shaq probably had had some fair points. It was probably just the delivery that let him down on that one. Look, Mitchell's a, a terrific player, but I I don't see him at that level of some of the, you know, the real league leading playmakers at the end of games. But I don't know that he's going to have to do too much more than what we're he's being asked to at the moment, uh, providing the continued play of Conley, Clarks, and Bogdanovich and Ingles um, can help bail him out. The issue for me potentially is when teams go small against Utah, and that might push out uh, Rudy Gobert being able to punish teams that he has been. So if they do downsize, he's certainly not a post-up threat like Embiid or Jokic would be on their respective team. So all he can do um, in that case is attack the smaller players on the you know on the glass offensively and try and get his points that way or catch the lobs over the top of them. So that's the sort of thing that opposition defences will probably live with um, rather than trying to go big for big against them. So that would be potentially an issue deeper in the playoffs when you look at a team like the Clippers that can certainly not play without a, a significant five-man. So they, you'd, you'd imagine they'd sit Zubach and then they'd go small with... Leonard George, Batum, Beverly, maybe Marcus Morris at the five. So there are other ways. Even a partner at the five, he can obviously stretch, you know, play the three-point line and try and drag Gobert out. Absolutely. So that that would be potentially an issue for them. But I think at this stage, you know, I really like the way that um, they've built this this roster and, you know, they've even got some one of the league-leading crowd numbers back into the building and that's going to be another important factor. We know that they're parochial crowd in Utah, so even if that arena does get half full, that's going to be an advantage in itself. 
Certainly will be. And, yeah, I totally agree. It's going to be really interesting to see how they do go with Gobert in the playoffs, whether they, they keep him in there when the opposition does downsize or whether they, they, they take him out and, and try and play a bit smaller. Uh, the other team that is on fire at the moment as well, before it lost to Dallas today, were the Brooklyn Nets. They're now 22-13, and 13, which is second in the East. They're first in offense, which is no surprise given the talent that they've got. Only 24th in defense. Uh, they've got a net rating of plus five, which is fifth in the league. As I mentioned, they had one eight in a row before their loss today, and Kyrie and Durant were both out today. Uh, included in, in their eight wins are wins against Indiana, Golden State, Phoenix, Clippers, and the Lakers. So they put up some really quality wins. They're actually the first East team to win five straight games on a West road trip since the Chicago Bulls in January of 2010, which is an, an absolutely astounding stat there. It probably just proves how week the East have been, but you would have think you would have thought that some team at some stage would have been able to string together five straight games on a West trip. So that was a bit of a surprise and 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 all the more impressive given that Durant has missed the last seven games. What have you seen, Caddy? We haven't spoken about Brooklyn since we, we addressed him in our first episode quite a few weeks back. What have you seen from the Nets since then? Well I think we preempted quite a bit of it when we did just uh, discuss them and, and at that stage we hadn't seen a lot of it sort of play out but I think the fact that talking about these three generational superstar offensive players it was going to cause problems for teams and you know yes the defense still hasn't climbed up in terms of its rating numbers but this offense is just unbelievable and when you've got Harden, Irving, Durant and you know we've even seen them do so much of this uh, work recently without Durant and um, I know Irving didn't play today but you know individually these guys are you know in the top 15-20 players in the competition and it just allows the other role players, which I think they've been probably pleasantly surprised. They've been getting a fair bit of um, uh, good production out of the ex- the other guys on the roster, particularly Joe Harris. And he was a guy probably envisaged taking the biggest hit from his, his standard numbers or what he'd probably be able to do on any other team. But just to be able to sit in the corner or um, spot up from three, all the defensive attention generally would go to um, a few of the other guys. And he, he's just a knockdown shooter and he's just having fun out there at the moment and doing it really, really easily. So he's the guy that really has um, been able to show you such a good role player. And albeit, you know, his individual numbers, I'm sure, could be better elsewhere. But, you know, he just fits into what they're trying to do really well. I think with Just on Harris, be... he's actually shooting 60%, 60% on open threes. Uh, he's leading the league at 50% on three-point shots. And he, he would be the first player in NBA history to shoot 50% on at least five attempts from from three. So you nailed it there. He, he's the one. He's getting so many open shots because of the attention that – you know, the, the, these offensive players' draws. And he's, he's, he's got a pretty easy gig, if we're being honest, but he's knocking them down, which is which is really crucial for him. Yeah, and there's nothing to suggest that's going to stop either because he's going to continue to get open looks. There's just nothing any other team are going to be able to do about it. You talk about pick your poison early in the podcast. Well, what are you going to do? Let Kevin Durant stand in the corner and shoot threes or let, let someone like Joe Harris do it? So you, you, you can't have it all. And he's, he's just been the perfect sort of fourth man into this team. And he, he's flexible. He can come off the bench if need be. Um, and also uh, stay in that starting lineup. So they're also getting some pretty good production um, out of DeAndre Jordan, uh, which they need to because um, he's really the only uh, lone big man left on the roster. And I think we probably would all predict they'll be looking for some additional help in the big man department in the buyout. We've seen them add some defensive help already through a couple of their free agent signings who they're going to now put on 10-day contracts in Andre Robinson and um, a man Shumpert. So, you know, they've certainly identified there's some needs there, particularly at the defensive end, and I think they'll also look to address a backup big at some point as well. But it's really hard to see them not being a, a real feature once we get into the point into the playoffs. You know, I mentioned it, you know, when we did discuss them after the trade around whether I thought they were a championship team, and I, I just couldn't look past the fact to get three absolute superstars into the team. It gives you absolutely every possibility, and all things being equal. Uh, both mentally and physically within that locker room, then I think they're probably, for me, the team to beat in the East. Yeah, they're certainly right there. You mentioned the fact that they're getting some good production out of their role players. The interesting one for me is Bruce Brown, who over the last three games has averaged 18 points. And he's only six foot four, but he's playing a really interesting role for them. He's actually almost playing as a centre. He just sort of cuts to the basket and he's he's left open and he's actually shooting 56% of his shots are coming at the rim. For, for a guy that's six foot four, that's... That, that's amazing, he, and he sort of get, gets these weird angles and flips them up off the glass, and he's, he's got a really weird running style. looks like he's almost ice skating out there. So have a look at him when he runs around, Caddy. He's a bit of a strange one, Bruce Brown. They got him from, from Detroit. 
um, almost thrown in as, as for free, and but he, he's producing for them. So he, he's been a really handy player for them over the last few games. But for me, I think Harden, Harden's the one, and we sort of questioned when this trade was made, who was going to be the one that was going to sacrifice a lot of touches, and we thought it, it might be Harden, but it hasn't really been the case. Kyrie Irving and him apparently had a conversation a few weeks ago, and, and Irving said to Harden, you're the man, you're the guy that's going to be running the show for us, and I th- he's been outstanding. He's probably playing his most sort of attractive basketball, if, I, I guess, for his career. He's averaging close to 25 points a game, and he's up to 11, almost 11 and a half assists a game, shooting 49% from the field, which is a career high, and 42 per th- 42% for three, which is also a career high. And pleasingly, fr- from, a, from a spectator's point of view, he's, his free throws are down uh, at 6.7, which is his lowest since his third season. So he's playing a much different brand of basketball. I think a lot of uh, basketball fans didn't really enjoy the way Harden went about it at Houston. He's obviously a, an extremely talented offensive player and, and could do a lot of stuff out on the court. But, you know, sort of holding the ball for 20 seconds, drilling between your legs and then shooting a step back three, Although that's obviously very talented, it wasn't all that pleasing to watch. But he's certainly playing a much more pleasing uh, brand of basketball, getting his teammates more involved. He's obviously got a bit more talent around him than he did have at Houston, so that's not surprising. But I think, uh, for me, it's been really pleasing to see the way Harden's been able to adjust his game style. And I said when when we spoke of quite a few weeks ago about Brooklyn, I did have a big question mark about their defense. And because of that question mark, I didn't think that they would be able to win a championship. Now, look, it's they're, they're only it's not as if, you know, they're all of a sudden turning into, you know, Detroit in the early 2000s, but they've got their rating up to 24th in defense and it's probably been a bit better than that over the last month or so. And given how potent their offense is, they probably really only need to be somewhere between usually you have to be a top 10 defense and offense, but I reckon given how talented their offense is, they probably really only need to fall maybe somewhere between 15 to 18, I reckon, and they're, they're going to be really tough to, uh, to beat. Do you think there are – would you put them – I think you did say maybe they're the favorite for the East. Where would you sit them in the packing order, not just in the East, but in the, in the whole the whole of the NBA? Oh, look, I've got them right at the, the very top. I, I think if they can get through uh, the three guys back um, and fit, then I think they've got enough around them and I think there's still a potential to, to continue to tweak the roster to get the pieces they need, whether it be through you know the buyout, through 10-day contracts, and I think they, you know, they're certainly looking to, to add to their areas of deficiencies. But just the way they're able to open up the floor has just allowed such elite offense in particular. And you, we mentioned Joe Harris before. He's, the, he's first in the league in three-point percentage. Kyrie Irving is first in the league in offensive rating. DeAndre Jordan is first in the league in effective field goal percentage and James Harden is first in assists. So they've just got answers everywhere. And this is we haven't even mentioned Kevin Durant in there, who's you know who's their best offensive you know, player. Yeah, who's who we won't see now till after the All Star break. So and I don't think that's a bad thing either. They can, you know, keep ticking along and you know, they've really solidified their spot within that top three sides in the East. So if they can kind of then mix and match lineups and give the guys the necessary rest they need in the lead up to the playoffs, well they're as dangerous as any team and I think they They've got the answers to pretty much every team in the league when, when asked of. The one interesting thing will be late in a playoff game, who actually gets that final shot? Now, Durant, Irving and James Harden are uh, actually the top three ranked isolation players in the league. So they're the best three isolation players. So you can go to any three of those and, and you're obviously going to get a pretty good result. But you know, I thought it was interesting uh, when they played the Clippers earlier on in the week. Harden had the ball in his hands for a majority of that game, but the last four minutes, Irving did for some unknown reason, and, and it wasn't all that effective. So it would be really sub- interesting to see what does happen in a playoff setting. I would probably give it to Durant. He can get any kind of shot he wants, and then Harden would be my second option. And as good as Irving is, and we've seen him hit a big shot for Cleveland in when they won that championship, he would probably be my third uh, third on the pecking order there. What, what, what would you go? What order, what order would you put those guys in? Well, it's a bloody good problem to have. That's the first thing I'd say. And, yeah, look, I'd probably certainly have uh, Kevin Durant and give him the ball at any time you're in trouble. Just his um, additional height that he has, it means he can get outside, he can get it inside, he can fade away, he can get it at the elbow, he can make any play that he really needs to. I'd probably have Irving second, you know, in terms of pure shot making. If you're looking for someone just to bail you out and make a shot, I I think it'd probably be Irving. And and that's more because I prefer Harden in that distributed role uh, where he can set the guys up. I think he's probably the best passer out of that group. And that's your, your final mix when you're, you're coming out of a, a timeout towards the end of the game and you're looking for a play to, to win it. Well, I'd rather uh, Harden have the ball in his hand and set one of these other two guys up. 
Fair enough. As you said, it's a good problem to have. You've got three of the best isolation players in, in the league. So whichever way you go, you're probably going to get a pretty decent shot. One team that's not getting up a lot of decent shots at the moment is the Boston Celtics. They're 16 and 17, which which does have them six, uh, tied for six in the East with Miami. Uh, the offensive rating of 14th, uh, defensive rating of 16th, and the net rating of plus 0.4, which is 13th in the competition. So that it would suggest that they're just a really mediocre team at the moment. They're three and six over their last nine games with some pretty ordinary losses to teams like Detroit, Washington, and twice to Atlanta. Given that they made made it all the way to the Eastern Conference uh, Finals last year, they did lose 4-1 to Miami, but the series was a lot closer than that scoreline would suggest. Have you been disappointed with Boston, or do you think this is sort of where they sit in the pecking order? Oh, no, I've probably been disappointed with them. I would have thought they would have been a, a lock into that top four. You know, we're talking two all-star players now in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, who, to be fair, Tatum, you know, did miss a significant portion with COVID issues earlier in the season and still probably trying to find his lungs and his feet as well. But, you know, they added Kemba Walker. They were prepared to let Gordon Haywood walk. Um, I think the the main uh, thing that's going wrong at the moment, and it's a guy that's probably sometimes overlooked behind, particularly Brown Tatum and, and Kemba Walker, is Marcus Smart, who's missed uh, the last few games as well. And he just uh, brings... Um, the last that, 15 games, which is, which is a long time. Yeah, so he brings the X factor to the group. He, he, he brings that real um, commitment to defence. He brings that real hustle and heart. He can shoot the three ball well. Um, not so much he, he's been doing it this year, but he certainly showed last year in the playoffs that he was prepared to, to step up and make the big shot. Um, but he, he just brings that extra uh, point of difference, I think, for the Celtics, whereas Tatum Brown, you know, still trying to really figure out which one or, or both is going to lead the team. They're both sitting at 25 points a game. It's just quite incredible that, you know, they've drafted these two guys in back-to-back drafts. They're both going to be essentially franchise players, and you, you really can't split which one is the team leader, which is, a, you know, you, you like to think it's a, a good problem to ha- have, but, you know, there might be just something going forward from a chemistry point of view that's not quite there. They both seem quite laconic in the way they get around and don't express a lot of emotion where, you know, Marcus Smart is that more dogged player and I think they're, they're certainly missing it. They're getting a bit of that from Peyton Pritchard, their rookie off the bench, who, you know, certainly comes and brings some energy from the second unit in particular. But um, they're really not getting probably what they would have thought out of guys like Jeff Teague and Tristan Thompson, who they brought in to add a bit of veteran presence uh, into the group. And that's uh, is certainly a, a, a setback for them. But Jeff, Jeff um, Teague yeah. in particular has been horrendous, shooting only 34% from the field. And he was the one that were obviously earmarking for that backup point guard role. And given that Kemba's missed so, so many games, they would have been hoping, given he's been around the league for a long time, and I think he was an all-star at some stage when he's in Atlanta, for him to be playing that poorly is, has certainly put a, thrown a spanner in the works for him at least. Yeah, and look, um, I looked at the standings, I think it was the day before yesterday, and Boston was sitting ninth. So it, it is so tight between spots four and probably 10 or 11 at the moment. So, you know, they've, they've won today. Oh, sorry, they've won yesterday. So that sort of puts them back into sixth spot. But, you know, they're, they're really treading a fine line. And I think with the talent they have, certainly a disappointing result that they're in this position to, to really be fighting fighting for their playoff survival. Yeah, it is. You mentioned there uh, the fact that uh, Smart has missed the last 15 games. They've gone 6-9 and nine in those games, so I totally agree with you. He's he's the heart and soul of their team. He He's the one that, that gets them going. He, he draws the charge. He'll dive on the loose ball and does get them going. You mentioned Tatum and Brown are a little bit laconic, and, and they are, but they're not quite that spark plug player that Marcus Smart can be. Their four best players, which are you know Tatum, Brown, Smart and Kemba Walker, have only played a combined 28 minutes together all season. So it's really hard to get a read on where Boston do sit, given the fact that those four guys have played such a small amount of basketball together this season. Kemba Walker is the one that also uh, missed the start of the season with a knee injury. He's only played in the 17 games. Now, his numbers are down right across the board. He's down to 18 points, down from 20 and a half last year shooting only 38% from the field. You know, he's been an all-star the last four years and he's still got $74 million left on his contract after this season and that knee injury is not looking great. He's really lost a lot of explosive, uh, a lot of explosion. He had a good game yesterday, but he hit more so a lot of really difficult shots. He wasn't getting to the rim. He, he's, his change of direction was his game. He's got a, had a really mean crossover and could stop on a dime and pull up and, and hit the jumper, but he hasn't been able to quite do that this year. So you hope 
for Boston's sake that he can get back to that, and it's just a matter of him getting getting a bit of conditioning and may, maybe a bit of confidence in his knee because that could become a real sort of heavy weight for them, that contract, if, if he starts to fall off a cliff. How have you seen Tatum's season so far? You, I know he's in your fantasy team, so you've been watching him really closely. You mentioned him and Jalen Brown are both averaging 25, 25 points a game, but uh, Tatum's shooting's down to 43%. He probably hasn't quite reached those levels this year, in my opinion, that I thought that he might. We saw how good he was in the bubble last year and hit some really big shots for them. And we know that in the past he spent quite a bit of time with Kobe Bryant and tried to refine his offensive game that way. And you do see sometimes he does fall into that Kobe Bryant trap of trying to hit those really tough contested fadeaways that Kobe could do so well that maybe Tatum can't quite do as well. How have you seen his progress this year and how do you think he sits? Yeah, look, he... He came out of the blocks really strongly, and I thought, yeah, this is this is good. He was a, a first round selection for me in my fantasy team, and I was just expecting the continual improvement, which we'd seen ever since his rookie season. And to be fair, he has you know still improved his scoring numbers, his rebounding is just off a little bit, and he has a, a improved in the assist category. But he's still the issue for me um, when you're looking at a you know a, a potential number one guy on a team, and you know you go across the board, and if it's Jokic or LeBron or Devin Booker or any of these, even Zach Levine to a, to an extent, they don't put in you know single digit games, and and T- Jason Tatum is capable of doing that, which I find quite astonishing, really. Even um, his game yesterday against Indiana, four from eighteen from the field, just the nine points. He only scored thirteen the game before that against in a loss to Atlanta, where he went for four four for twenty. He had a game about eight games, well, seven or eight games back again, three for fourteen for six points. So he is prone to putting in a couple of these dog performances. Which, a from a fantasy point of view, is, is a bit of a disaster when you when you invest so much into your first round pick. But also, just from the Celtics' point of view, if he is your team leader uh, potentially moving forward, then he needs to sort of improve that consistency and you know probably take take on that responsibility a little bit more. So I think he certainly has flattened out a little bit in his his career trajectory at this stage. Albeit, it's very hard to sit here and, and understand what sort of impact contracting the COVID disease has had on a guy and had to, you know, basically sit out for two or three weeks and then come back into the um, day-in, day-out environment of the NBA. So I, I have to imagine it's quite difficult and you, you've probably got to give them a, a little bit of a pass mark, him individually and then also the Celtics, just to, to get all that to come back. And hopefully we'll see probably post the All-Star break um, a more fit and firing Jason Tatum. Yeah, he has mentioned how much he is struggling with his breathing and stuff like that. So he was he was named as that all-star uh, starter replacement for Kevin Durant. So hopefully, as you said there, after the all-star break, he can get back to playing that sort of basketball. And if he does and Kemba Walker can get back on track a little bit, I'm sure Boston can can, can make a bit of a rise up the rankings there. The other team that, that has struggled this season a little bit are the Denver Nuggets. They're 18 and 15, which is eighth in the West. They're fifth in offense, only 21st in defense. Uh, they got a net rating of plus three, which is seventh in the league, which is which is obviously pretty good. They've struggled recently. They're only two and four in their last six. Given that they made it all the way to the West, uh, play, uh, the West Finals, similar to Boston, there was probably some pretty high expectations on them. But for me, I think that they were really lucky. You mentioned the fact that Utah almost knocked them out in the first round, and then they got the Clippers in the second round, and they just sort of fell in a heap. That that they were behind in that series as well, and and were staring down some pretty large deficits until. The Clippers inexplicably lost their way and then were, were rolled pretty comfortably by the Lakers in the Western Conference final. So it could have been a bit of fool's gold there for, for the Nuggets. Uh, but given that anyway, how have you seen the Nuggets progress this year, Caddy? Yeah, well, I just don't think they've made any progress, to be honest. And, you know, you would have expected, as you said, there were some uh, mitigating circumstances for their, you know, really impressive run uh, to the Western finals last year. But you would have expected on face value that, there'd be just continual improvement out of this group, particularly from Jamal Murray. He really asserted himself as almost a number one offensive player, albeit in a team with Nikola Jokic. But he was able to really take the bull by the horns um, and, you know, late in the shot clock, make some plays and, and be, the, be the man for that team. So I don't think that he's necessarily taken a, a step uh, forward in, in any great sense. I mean, his numbers are still okay. He's averaging the 21 points, four assists and four rebounds. But I suppose for him... You would have liked to think that potentially there was greater upside in being a you know a high mid to high twenties 
uh, scoring average going forward for them. Yeah, well, in the, play, the, in the playoffs last year, he averaged 26.5 points, 4.8 rebounds and 6.6 assists, shooting 50-45-90 splits. So they're just absolutely elite numbers. And as you said there, I think, I think everybody expected him to really take off, but he's sort of gone back to – he's improved on his previous season – but he, but he hasn't been able to reach those levels. And I think uh, for Denver to get to where they need to be, he needs to be able to get back to those those playoff bubble levels. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's been a disappointment. Gary Harris, for me, is another one. And yes, he has missed a, a fair chunk of the season, but he still has played the 19 games as well. But, you now he's scoring under 10 points a game, which is just not what you need from a, a starting calibre uh, guard to put alongside Murray. So that's been a real problem for them. He's uh, a strange he's one, isn't he? he? Harris, he's just fallen off the face of the earth a few Three, four seasons ago, he was averaging seventeen points a game, and they signed him to a to an eighty million dollar year uh, deal. He's still he's still owed twenty million dollars next year. But he said there to be averaging under ten points a game as a starting uh, caliber shooting guard. Look, he, he's he is good defensively, but that's, that's just not good enough for a guy earning that sort of money. No, and he was sort of a guy that they'd always got mentioned as a the young star that would complete a package for Denver with potentially Porter Jr., Gary Harris. These were the carrots that were going to get thrown out there you know, to build with draft picks for potentially to trade for a bigger star. But I don't think he's certainly got that um that reputation now. And, you know, they're going to be probably hamstrung with that contract, certainly going to the end of it. Um, and Michael Porter Jr. is, you know, the other really interesting player on this roster. So he's the guy that they would have expected to come in and take a giant leap forward uh, just on the back of some of the some of his play late last year and, and even early this year. But he's sort of stagnated as well really only averaging the 14 points and six rebounds, which I think is probably unders for a, a goal with his sort of potential. And, you know, he came out of the draft or he came out of high school, certainly highly rated, and there were some red flags around his back and a few other issues going into the draft, which is why he, he slid down the order. But when he did come back uh, last year, you could really see, you know, what that, all that initial hype was about. But he's a guy that probably hasn't really come into his own like I'm sure the Denver hierarchy would have hoped for, whether that's still you know, that level of improvement might come in the second half of this year is, is to be seen. But I think um, the fact that he hasn't come on like they would have and, you know, sort of replaced a lot of the production that Jeremy Grant, you know, had had within that team that obviously went to beat, uh, Detroit in the off-season. So, um, you I'm know, not sure how Morris, much their coach Mike Malone trusts Michael Porter Jr. Because you, you said there how, how talented he is offensively, and that's certainly the case. I agree. I would have thought his numbers certainly would have jumped up a lot more than that. He was sort of spoken about as almost being untouchable when, when Denver were mentioned in potential trades for Bradley Beal or James Harden. It was sort of thought that Denver were reluctant to include a Michael Porter Jr., which you know now seems a little bit cra- crazy. But given that Jeremy Grant gave him such good defense last year, you see some of the vision of Michael Porter Jr., and he just gets totally lost. He, which which is can be uh, understandable for some young players, but he just loses focus, and and guys are backdooring and you know, getting layups and uncontested dunks. So, I think I think for him to earn the trust of Mike Malone, he's certainly got to improve. Uh, defensively, because his offensive game certainly does bring quite a bit to the table, but defensively he's just not quite good enough. Yeah, that's probably a reflection of Denver overall. I mean, they're they're ranked fifth in offense across the league, which is a really strong number, but they're 21st in defense. So that's a problem for them. They're 28th in pace. So there just seems to be a real sameness about them. The guys like Millsap, Will Barton, Gary Harris, you know, they brought a guy like Jermichael Green into the team. So you, you're wondering where this improvement's going to come from, and Porter Jr. is the obvious one. Whether they can get some, some time into Bowl Bowl, he's a guy that you know they just haven't put any sort of trust into. They're playing um, Campazo off the bench. He, you know, he's got some tricks certainly. Uh, Naji haven't some, haven't some of these passes been entertaining to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Naji's got some uh, talent from outside the arc as well. But you think they're going to have to mix something up? I think to get back into this. Well, certainly from a, a championship race. I mean, they're, they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth in the eighth seed at the moment. So for them to elevate. In post All Star break and try and make a make a run again, I think they might have to make a change somewhere um, throughout the roster and, and try and spark things up because you know they're getting an MVP caliber caliber season out of Jokic, um, and the rest of it just seems a bit stagnant and a bit the same for mine. Where do you think they need to to add? Do you think it's a defensive wing? And if they do add a defensive wing, how high do you think they could certainly that they could rise in the standings? And if they don't add anyone, do you think they're just sort of going to be around that? Six, seven, eighth mark. Yeah, look, I think if they just leave it as it is, then I think the improvement we've seen out of a team like Utah, I think the gap's too big. Um, and then obviously the class of the Clippers and the Lakers and the um, significant improvement of the Suns who have jumped over them as well. So 
I think that the roster as it's currently constructed needs some assistance, and you're certainly looking at the defensive end in particular. So, you know, you look at a guy from Chicago, Thaddeus Young, who's a you know defensive-minded uh, player. He could be a guy that can come in and play a role for them. You know, but they're, they're the sort of gaps they need to be trying to find. And, and also some more answers on offense. I mean, there is such a heavy reliance on on Nikola Jokic to, to provide that for them, and he's certainly absolutely capable shooting 56% from the field and 27 points a game. So there's no dramas there. But if Murray's if Murray's not hot, then where's the second and third options coming from? Yeah, it, it is very difficult to see where, where the next option comes from. Another guy who, who I have mentioned previously and who is out injured at the moment is Aaron Gordon from the Orlando Magic. I could see maybe a Gary Harris and a first-round pick and a second-round pick or something just to, to satisfy Orlando. I, I could see him sort of sliding in nicely and, and playing the four for them, and he can concentrate on being that defender for him and just sort of getting his scraps uh, on the offensive end. So I think he, he might be able to add a little bit for them as well. The other big news of the week was the Minnesota Timberwolves firing Ryan Saunders as coach. Uh, he had a 43-94 and 94 record, uh, only 7-24 and 24 this year. So overall, he had a 31% uh, winning rate as a coach. He did only have five games as coach with Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley, who are their three best players. So you could argue maybe he didn't quite get his full opportunity to coach the T-Wolves. Uh, he did take over as an interim coach after Tom Thibodeau was fired and then was given the job um, after after that season. I think he was pretty popular with the players. He was only 32 years of age when he was given the job as the head coach, which is obviously pretty young, but they thought he related to the players pretty pretty well, in particular their star, Carl Anthony Towns. He was replaced uh, by Chris Finch, the, the Raptors assistant, which is highly unusual uh, during the season for, a, for, an, for an assistant uh, coach from another organisation to be given the role as, as head coach. But Chris Finch was actually interviewed uh, when they did give the job to Saunders. So they did have a track record with Finch. I'm sure they had kept in pretty close contact with him. Um, from all reports, it came together pretty quickly. Uh, Finch sort of was given the, given the opportunity to take the job only 36 hours before he was given the role. So it does sound all highly unusual. What, what did you feel about that, Caddy? Did you think, firstly, was Saunders a bit unlucky given the fact that the three stars hardly played together under uh, under his coaching? Or do you think it was fair enough? And B, what did you think about the fact that a, an assistant coach from another another organisation was given the head coaching role? Well, I think initially he was probably lucky to get the job. And there was obviously the, the strong franchise relations with his um with his late dad, Flip Saunders, that probably cemented him within the organisation and, and gave him the job at such a young age. But I think the, the decision to fire him and, and move on is, is probably fair. I mean, the, they're sitting at you know, a league worth 7-27 and 27 and you have touched on some of the issues they've had this year in getting their best team together. But I don't think that's an isolated situation for Minnesota. I think most of the teams at some point or another this year have experienced um, hardship along the way. So it's just about trying to bring some winning culture back into the organisation. And you, you spoke of Ryan Saunders' record and it, it's certainly not one that's reflecting that. So... For me, I think the most interesting part of all this is Carl Anthony Towns and, and just his his status within the, the organisation because it's going to come to a point pretty soon where you, you, the writing, I think, for me is on the wall that at some point he's going to be that next disillusioned um, star player that's going to want out of a, a struggling franchise. And to his credit, even after the, the issues during the week with the, the coach changeover, he still has sort of mounted his case to stay in Minnesota and he wants to turn it around and be the guy that brings winning culture back to them. But I'm just not sure he's the sort of guy that's able to do that. You know, this year has been a, a, a real disaster for him, obviously, you know, with all the COVID issues we, we've touched on previously. His numbers are down as well. He, he's dropped from 26.5 points down to 22.5 points um, in just the 13 games this year, which is which is probably not ideal either. You mentioned he hasn't played a lot with D'Angelo D'Angelo Russell or Malik Beasley, but he's not going to be playing with Beasley for a while now. You insinuated a few weeks that we'd be expecting um, a suspension at some point based on the off-court issues that Beasley had, and that's come to fruition. He's going to he's been given a twelve-game suspension from the league. Have, uh, you, for, have you got any idea why that took so long to happen? I, I was expecting that to be sort of announced early on in the season. He he didn't get drafted in our fantasy draft. I'd left him alone for that reason. Was was it mentioned at all why the NBA took so long to actually hand out that suspension? Well, I suppose, you know, they're just giving the player, I'd imagine, the benefit of the doubt and letting the legal proceedings run its course first. But I think they had run its course, and that was the interesting part where he yeah, basically sure had, they had yeah. been, been given a, a suspended sentence that he may have to have to 
take part in, um, I think, after the season. But, yeah, so it's quite interesting that they've just only this week announced that 12-game game suspension for him. So, uh, but going back to Towns, I mean, he, he's played for, he's only been in Minnesota for six seasons in the league. He's played one playoff series, and that was the year of Jimmy Butler and Thibodeau over in town. He's the number one overall pick out of Kentucky, and it's just not a great reward for the Timberwolves at that selection. In these six seasons, though, he has had four coaches and about to have his fifth coach. So, again, there's just been no stability there for him, and um, you just think at some point this is going to come to a, an unhappy end um, for the Timberwolves and Carl Anthony Towns. You would think so. They obviously tried to, to make him happy by signing D'Angelo Russell, their, their childhood friend, so he pushed hard for that. But given the fact you mentioned there, how many coaches he's had in, in his short career, the GMs did have that survey a couple of years ago when he was the one he was the one player that they wanted to build their franchise around. Now he was he would obviously slip, he wouldn't even be mentioned now if they took that survey again. But he would certainly be hot property on the market. Given that and given the fact that where the Minnesota Timberwolves do sit, do you think it would be smarter then to get out ahead of the pack and, and put him on the market? I'm sure they could get a plethora of first round picks. Not that they're First-round picks have, have been all that good to him in the past, but do you think it would be better for them to do that, get the first-round picks and sort of reboot the franchise, sink further down? That they've, that they've got that potential draft pick that they may have to hand over to, to Golden State this year, which is only top three pr- uh, protected. They have got the worst record in the league at the moment, but the way the lottery is structured now, that's, uh, they, could, they could drop to fifth and have to hand that pick over. Do you think they should look to trade towns, maybe not during this season, but maybe in the off season, and try and get get as much back as they possibly can for him? Oh, look, it's got to be a conversation at some point. I mean, you'd certainly let this season play out and see whether that draft pick um, lands in the top three, and if they can keep the pick draft a, a really talented player to pair with Edwards Russell Towns, then maybe there is some hope for them. You know, he's he's under contract not just for this year, but a further three years at about a hundred million dollars um, after this year. So it's a really so they big should number. be able to get a lot. Like it would be it would be unusual for a franchise to trade their superstar player with three years left on their contract. I understand that, but but given that you know he might come out before then and say I want to get out of here, and that sort of narrow, he might say I want to go here and here, which which sort of might narrow the market for him. It would be interesting if they did get out in front of it and, and offer him up. And as I said, I reckon they could get a lot for him. Yeah, and I think it, it would have to come from the team because I don't think if Towns came out now and said, I want to get traded, well, he just doesn't have the that. And we spoke about it uh, last week on, on the podcast about where where the um, power is held, whether it's with the player or with the team. And I think with three years well, three years plus to run on the contract or the pet, the power's with the team, really. I don't think Towns can come out and dictate his terms when they've you know made such a significant commitment to him. So, now look, it's a bit of a shit show in, in Minnesota and it you know, brought up some other issues that we're probably not quite educated enough to talk about when the coach from Toronto was hired and then Towns had some disappointment around that they didn't go through a process and um, consider a couple of their black assistant coaches. So Yeah, D- you know, David Vanderpool, who, who was the assistant, or I believe he still is the assistant at Minnesota, who, who's been an assistant at Portland. We saw Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum sort of come out strongly and and sort of campaign for him. So yeah, it's it, it's a little bit unusual. It's it's yeah, as you said, we're we're not really qualified to to comment on, on that sort of stuff. But it, it certainly did raise some eyebrows. Obviously, that that a guy they've got there that they've seen how he's operated. He's been an assistant coach for a long period of time, and they didn't go with him. Instead, they went for for Finch, a, a guy from another organization. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think the fact that the firing happened and the the new hiring came basically on the same day was was interesting in itself. So. Um, he's obviously a dead man walking for some time, uh, Ryan Saunders. But sitting at the bottom of the league, um, seven and twenty-seven. Well, a change was probably inevitable at some point. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, we'll move on to our Aussie of the week segment, and we thought we'd touch on the NBL uh, this week. And given the fact that we're both Melbourne United supporters, and and the Melbourne United are off to a hot start this season, they sit nine and one so far, and that's made even the more impressive by the fact that their captain Chris Golding. Uh, who after a really hot start to the season has missed the last five games with a calf complaint and he's going to be out for a further few more games. Uh, Shay Illy has also missed five games and and he was on fire at the start of the season, uh, uh, particularly from the three-point line, shooting a career high from down there. Came back last night in the game and, and hit another another few threes. So given the fact that he that uh, Golding's missed five games and Shay Illy's missed five games, 
They've also got Jack White, who's who's missed last night's game and is going to be out for about six weeks uh, with a really badly injured finger in a play that happened in the last couple of seconds of the game. Not sure if you saw that at all, Caddy, but it was a pretty pretty hard contact with Jack White going off for a layup with two seconds to go. And I think the only reason that sort of thing happened is because in this NBL Cup, you can actually get points for every quarter you win. So the opposition didn't want to give away uh, the points and try to win that quarter. Usually when there's two seconds left in a game, you know, the team with the ball would just dribble it out. But we saw the fact that White got fouled pretty hard going to the basket there and, and suffered a really bad injury, which is going to keep him on the sidelines for the, another six weeks, as I said. But Melbourne, the Melbourne United have so much talent around those guys. You know, they've got Jack Landau, Scotty Hobson, the Japanese sensation Yurai Baba, who's, who's a real joy to watch. Um, I think they're going to be really, really hard to beat for the championship. And certainly once they get all their guys back on the court, they're going to be almost impossible to beat, I think, for the championship. I know that's an early call given given we've only played 10 games so far. But what have you seen out of Melbourne United so far? Well, I think the talk at the start of the year was that, you know, it may be one of the best rosters from top to bottom that we've seen, you know, in the recent history of the NBL. And there was talk about, you know, potentially an undefeated season. But with the injuries that they that you mentioned to Golding, to Shaili, and now to Jack White is probably not going to make that make that happen, though. I mean, they have lost the one game already. But I think they've held up really well. Uh, particularly with those injuries that um, have, have come on and that they have showed their resilience and you know the fact that they are quite a deep team. Look, I think the Jack White injuries are, is a disaster, uh, personally. A, the way it happened, and, and, and you, you spoke so eloquently around um, the issues with the NBL Cup and, and the points um, that are up for offer. But to lose a guy for six weeks on a, on a play with two and a half seconds left it is just a disaster. And, and Jack White's a real sort of... Um, Jack of all trades for this team, and you know, adds a just an uber athlete, isn't he? He's, he's got some serious hops. Yeah, he's got some got some real good legs there, and you know, he's come from a, a really successful Duke program the last four years, playing as a, a team captain in the end for for a team that had once had Zion Williamson playing in it. So he, he's got some real some real experience and some important games under his belt to come over. And you know, I don't think he's ever going to be a star in the league or even potentially an Australian boomer, but he's certainly got some real game chops and he can you know, he can put himself in the right position in any given team. So, you know, Mitch McCarran for me is the guy that has um, been able to continue um, the surgence of the Melbourne United team with these injuries. Him and Jack, Jock Lundale in particular um, uh, have really built some strong chemistry up and I think I think no, McCarran is a real barometer for him. We've seen, we saw last in last night's game when they were down at halftime to the Sydney Kings. Uh, McCarran had only had one shot, and he was a much more aggressive in the second half. And Leonard Copeland on the call was employing him to do that, and we've seen him do that over the last few games. And you know, he, he was earlier on in his career, he was a he was a more often offensive minded player. But I think coming to United with so many offensive weapons, he's probably probably taken a back seat in that role, look to distribute a bit more. But certainly with Golding and some of these other now white out, he's gonna have to he's gonna have to put his foot on the throat of the opposition a lot more and look to score a lot more. And when he does, uh Melbourne United is certainly a much better team. Yeah, no, I just want to touch on the fact you mentioned Leonard Copeland on the call and wasn't that a joy having him and Andrew Gaze in the commentary box last night. Um they'll get stuck into each other a bit too. I, I enjoyed yeah, that. I thought it was quite entertaining and um you know I think hopefully we can get the pair of them on a little bit more. I mean, I went out to the NBL Cup today, and I think it's been a you know for a state that's had so much hardship in the last twelve months here in Victoria to see um, live some live basketball and the ability to you know almost watch it night in night out here for a month at the moment is is fantastic. And took my two kids along today. My six year old son was his first game watching, and my nine year old daughter. And yeah, they got right into it. It's such an entertaining product. They put you on know, a good spectacle, don't they? Absolutely, and you know it's, it is quite intimate compared to going to you know to the MCG and watching a game of football. You're really involved. You'd be able to get on the on the big screen on the camera and you know get the clappers and all that sort of thing. So it was quite quite enjoyable. And just touching quickly on the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix, so I think you know they've got the real capabilities of potentially challenging as the season goes on. They were quite impressive. They're sitting in third position on the NBL ladder at the moment. And Mitch Creek's just an absolute professional. You know he, he had 19 points to half time, and then in the second half it was the the American import Ben Moore that sort of took over and, and scored 20, 20 points as well. Cole Adams, a guy that you know we watched as as when basically as a young kid playing fan favourite when he was at the United. Yeah, so you know he's gone become almost a bit of an NBL journeyman already, but he's matured into a really really good playmaker and just sets the table for these guys. And I think today he went for eleven points, eleven assists, and, and made really easy work for his for his teammates. And, you know, that's notwithstanding Ryan Brokoff, who was announced uh, last week that's going to be joining the Phoenix. Huge get for them, isn't it? Um, 
for the back end of the season once he comes out of quarantine for for another you know absolutely elite shooter and we touched on how important he's going to be hopefully in the boomers Tokyo campaign to be able to put him out on the floor as well it's going to be um, fantastic for, for not only the NBL but uh, for the for the Phoenix and the other guy that was in the boomer spot who I was really impressed with today he played nearly every minute was um Cam Glidden so he's a guy that a bit not not unlike Mitch McCarron for the United he seems to be just their sort of heart and soul player there he can shoot the three ball really well and get up and down the court and really athletic and he's a guy that um, I was really impressed with with his 19 points today. Yeah, certainly. And it's really exciting to see both Melbourne teams with some upside to come. You mentioned Ryan Brokov there. He's certainly going to uh, improve the Phoenix when he gets in and, and obviously Melbourne when they get back Chris Golding and uh, and Jack White. And, and they're getting some really ordinary play at the moment from their import, Scott, Scotty Hobson, who's, who's just really forcing the offense at the moment. We've seen him take a number of really ordinary contested shots and he took one late in the game last night. Uh, Melbourne United had the ball with 30 seconds to go. They were up. And he, he didn't wind the clock down anywhere near long enough, took a really tough contested three, which was never going to go down and gave Casper Ware the chance to win the game from. So I'm pulling my hair out a little bit at the moment with Scotty Hobson. He's, he's got to he's got to find his role at the moment. He's good when he's attacking the rim, but he's got to put away these these contested sort of mid-range shots that he seems to love so much because it's really hurting United at the moment. So if he can get himself back on track and play at the level that he can and we get Golding and we get uh, Jack White back in, into the lineup, as I said, I think United are going to be really tough to beat. And Phoenix too could could really push up the ladder once they get broke off back in uh, up and firing and into their team. So we'll call it there. Uh, thanks again to everybody who's continuing to download the podcast. As I say every week, if you haven't gone onto Apple Podcasts and given us a rating, uh, I implore you to do that. It really helps us to spread the podcast and we would really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thank you.